This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Ryan Irwin of Gilderland. He teaches history at the University of Albany and has written books on our world order. When we talked to him last Friday, the day after the Russian army attacked Ukraine, Irwin had just taught a class on the German invasion of Ukraine in the 1940s. The line between past and present is very thin, he says. His students are reading Timothy Snyder's Black Earth, in which Snyder draws direct connections between what Hitler's worldview was in the 1930s and what Putin is doing today. Our regular readers may recognize his name because he's written us letters on various subjects. But the reason I am grateful that he's with us today is I think all of us are uh, trying to come to terms with Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And I'm hoping the professor can lend us some insight. And I just think it's fair to let listeners know, since this podcast won't be posted until next week, that we're talking on Friday. That's the day after the invasion, because in a week from now, the whole landscape may have changed. But um, welcome, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start just by hearing a little bit about how your students, is this something that you're addressing in your classes with your students, or is it not a time you can go off the curriculum <laughs> to look at what's happening in the world? No, I, I, I taught uh, this morning. Um, I'm teaching a class on 20th century world history, and this week, actually, uh, serendipitously, we're covering the German invasion of the Ukraine uh, in the, the 19, 1940s. And the line between past and present is very, is very thin. This is a, a, a book in particular that we're, that we're talking about by a historian named Tim Snyder. It's called Black Earth. And he explores the, the kind of ecological reasoning of, of Hitler in the, the mid part of the 20th century and draws really direct connections at the end of the book between uh, what Hitler's worldview was in the 1930s, 1940s, and what Putin is doing uh, today. And so the students have a have a have a really interesting uh, lens or perspective to to talk through this. And I actually just ran this morning a, a, an exercise in which I asked them to talk through uh, an op-ed. Uh, does history have a uh, have a lesson uh, for us today, or are historical analogies and, and, and metaphors, uh, are they inherently dangerous and things that we should, should, should avoid because every, every moment is a little different than any, any other uh, moment. And you might over-respond uh, if you equate what uh, Putin did yesterday uh, to, uh, you know, to Munich in 19, 1938. Uh, so what are the uses and what are the abuses of, of history, I think, is something that students are very much uh, alive to. And I think we're all cognizant of the fact that the last few years, um, every semester <laughs> as a teacher, you're 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 commenting on the uh, 
the fact that we're living through history uh, in real time and students are are tremendously alive to that to that fact with the with the pandemic uh, with the uh, January 6th insurrection uh, etc et the list goes on it's almost every semester uh, frighteningly uh, you have fodder for um, how we got here conversations about how we got here and where we might go next well, there's so many things you laid out on the table there. I don't even know which one to pick up. But if you go back to the Black Earth, the book you were talking about, and this idea of the parallels between Putin's invasion of Ukraine and Hitler's, where do you come down as an historian? Do you think those parallels are valid? Or do you think it's the point you raised? It's a dangerous sort of path for us to be thinking along. Well, the reason I assigned the signed the book is uh, I I really um, appreciate uh, Tim's Tim's argument. He's making the claim in this book and in other things that he's that he's written that we make a really serious mistake if we uh, look at Hitler and only see his racism. If that's the only thing that we 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 acknowledge, if we say you know Hitler was driven by a by an insane anti-Semitic uh, worldview, and what Tim does really really effectively in this book is not not throw that out the out the window, but he creates this much bigger context, a historical context to understand where a lot of people were in the 1930s. This was a time um, when autarky was on the rise and prevalent, not just in uh, Germany, not just in Japan or, or Italy, but also here in the United States, uh, in Great Britain, in, in India and other places. The widespread assumption was that for states to have influence and power on the international stage, they had to control vast swaths of land and that land, the extraction of resources from that land uh, would allow them to be self-sufficient and that self-sufficiency would make them would make them uh, uh, powerful. And what Tim argues really well and what I'm trying to get the students to think about is, A, what are the unintended consequences of that uh, when two of these autarkic uh, entities come into conflict with each other, as they did in in Eastern Eastern Europe, and then also what are some of the, the the strange assumptions, intellectual assumptions on which that rests? And it's um, uh, it, it, it's a the, the book itself doubles as a really brilliant analysis of uh, anti liberalism uh, in the interwar interwar years. Right, the, the the key point that Hitler jumps off of is this is this notion that. You know, we live in a in a jungle, and uh, politics is about uh, taking control of resources for your for your people, for your for your side. And he, Tim, is making a direct connection between Putin today, who's working off a similar set of assumptions, a similar argument uh, that politics is a is a struggle for for survival. Um, it's a zero sum game. There's no such thing as progress. Uh, the, the the lesson the history's a, the history offers very few lessons. The future doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is is now and one's control of 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 of, of resources. Putin is doing that, but also uh, you can see echoes of that argument uh, in American politics uh, as as well. Like if you're going to understand how the Republican Party has transformed, um, this is a really interesting interesting insight. Once you walk away from the notion that human beings have dignity, uh, that we are not just uh, animals like any other animal. Uh, that we live in 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 societies and aspire toward toward civilizing norms that make us a little bit better. That the past does offer lessons. Uh, that you have to uh, uh, adjust your actions in the present uh, so that you are putting your community on on a basis for a sustainable sustainable future. Once you wash that away, 
Well, then you find yourself walking into this, uh, as, as Tim calls it, zoological anarchism. Uh, and that then. Say that term again, the zoological anarchism. Oh, wow. That's quite a term, isn't it? it, It's a, it's a, uh, for about 10, 15 minutes, the students kind of chewed on this and tried to make, tried to make sense of what was, what was at stake. But it's, um, I think it, it offers a really, what, what, what you, what you see when you start to, to look at this period in the past through this, this lens, you get a very, very different way to understand the present as well. And you start to see, um, Hitler's anti-Semitism, not just as a, as the thing that's causing him to do what he does, but as one small part of a much bigger worldview that could very easily be brought into the present and in some respects is being brought into the to the to the present right right now. And so it gives the students, I hope, a, um, uh, a rich uh, ground to kind of talk through and, and situate their own, you know, their own set of assumptions and its relationship to the past. Well, you mentioned our own Republican Party. Can you kind of unpack that in terms of this idea that you just put forth? Because it's been kind of mind boggling to watch what's happened in the last four years. Just your thoughts as a historian looking at where we are now in what used to be a pretty solid two party system um, that's uh, run off the rails, it, it seems. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's been an amazing, um, it's an amazing time to teach uh, in part because every cohort of students is a little different than they were a few years earlier. One of my favorite classes to teach is actually a, um, a study on the, the war on terror. Uh, when can historians uh, talk about the war on terror as something that's in the past? And I teach this about every, you know, uh, four, four semesters, four or five semesters. And every group of students is totally different. They bring very, very different politics into the classroom. So one of the things that the, the canary in the coal mine for me was the, was when torture um, started to become something that, uh, that a cohort of students um, were really behind <laughs> and, and really wanted to talk about, about torture as maybe a policy that should be re- rehabilitated. Whereas as someone who lived through that, that time of pe- and it, even just a few years earlier, the students themselves, this wasn't something that you would debate uh, in a, in a classroom. This was, this was very clearly that debate was, was settled. So there's all types of things that I think are becoming unsettled. I, my own, I'm wrestling with this right now in, in real time. Like I, I wrote a piece uh, just recently um, that kind of explored uh, maybe a, a, a bigger, I would say like a, a bigger, a, a moment that is now sort of closing um, where for a while on the right and the left, you you can see sort of an embrace of, of radicalism without consequence, radicalism without consequence. And when you start to sort of um, think about your politics in isolation from any type of community, when it just becomes kind of you performing, like I'm just saying stuff for the sake of saying it. I, you know, it doesn't have to have con. It, it's I'm going to say radical things, whether or not they're on the right or on the on the left, and I don't have to worry through. I don't have to think through the consequence in a in a real community. Well, then you start to like open weird doors, and my I I would again as someone who started teaching when social media wasn't really a thing, <laughs> and has watched how students themselves interact uh, with ideas, and how that's changed. Um, it certainly feels as though we're right now seeing the the really weird consequences of what happens when uh, when for 10, 15 years you you accommodate radical thoughts and don't have to 
to think through the consequences of this of this radicalism. And again, it's most accentuated. It's accentuated for me, uh, you know, with on, on, the, on the right. And we're, you know, in the shadow of you know, January 6th and trying to make sense of kind of what is going to happen to a, a Republican Party that seems even in real time yesterday um, to, to to be very supportive of what uh, Vladimir Putin was doing. And that's a, you know, once you open that door and you think through that, uh, you know, you you um, you go in really strange, strange direction. So I think it's it's accentuated on the on the right because Trump took over the Republican Party. Uh, but it also exists to the to the left as well. Where I think that there's um, there's less of an emphasis on common ground and maintaining common ground and allowing for rival viewpoints uh, to come into to conflict with each other, but also sort of maintain that common that common space or that sense of of community. I think is um, so. I'm not sure where it's going to go, but I do think is that the classroom is just a really amazing um, a sandbox to kind of watch some of these these trends uh, play out. And you certainly see in a place like UAlbany, you know, we have a very, very, very diverse uh, student body on, on, on all ends of the spectrum. Um, and I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's been a really interesting couple of years because you've seen students on the right go farther to the right. And you've seen students on the left go farther to the, to the, to the left. And that has fascinating implications for just how you talk about um, government power, foreign policy, domestic policy, all these, all these things. Well, your classroom, the sandbox, as you call it, is kind of a common ground, though, isn't it? Because these people that might normally be on their own feeds and, you know, have sort of silos of people that agree with them are all together in the classroom discussing these things. Right. So you must be kind of finding the common ground just in those discussions. What interests me with this new war is just how different Social media, maybe you can talk about this. Having lived through the Vietnam War, it was so new to see people dying on your television screen. Um, You know, it wasn't like Ernie Pyle in the trenches writing pieces that were (laughs) contained about it. It felt very real in your living room. And I think it led to a lot of the protests. And now... um, unless you're in a place like China that is so clamped down on what gets spread on social media, it seems like in Russia, there are people, you know, that are, we have a, a, a man that's working on website development for us there who, you know, is kind of appalled at what's happening in his government. And it's just, there's, the state television is not the only source of information anymore. There's this, way of getting information that goes around that. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on how how that's going to change the war, even as we as Americans are seeing it. I mean, yesterday, the New York Times had red blotches on all the cities that had been attacked. And just to see that, and they have little clips of um, this very heated argument between the ambassador from Ukraine and the ambassador from Russia. Um, and you could just witness that <laughs> in a way that with earlier um, media coverage, it wasn't so accessible. I mean, do you have any thoughts on how that is affecting? Yeah, I think it's I think it's absolutely true. It's it's it, it, your, your comments make me think I've got a, a friend who work in Internet security and marketing, and they were both making the point last night and again this morning that um, as people who are 
like embedded in that world in the in the business side of 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 what you're what you're talking about they really didn't believe that it was possible for somebody to do what putin is doing in 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 real time that the the that the existence of the technology the ability to kind of put this information out there so quickly would be a strong enough disincentive so that the the wars of yesteryear would simply be would simply be um impossible or, or, or highly un, unlikely. So I, I totally uh, agree. I think it's a fascinating, we're in a fascinating moment because, you know, these technologies are more pervasive, but also doing things that are totally different than what you would have thought that they would do uh, a, a few, a few decades, one decade ago, or maybe even five, five years ago, you know, they they actually are weapons, not only for uh, kind of putting ideas out there and spreading information really quickly, but they're also the, the, the counterpoint is, is, is equally important that you can um, you can manipulate these tools and, and radicalize populations uh, in really in in really pervasive pervasive ways. I think for for me as someone who's trained as a historian, I kind of see my my place in the conversation as being just offering a longer view because I think that's something that gets harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. You know, when you're not reading about the Ukraine invasion on the paper, but you're literally watching live. Uh, as these, as the the red arrows go from 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 place to place, it's harder to actually put this into any historical context. And the point that I was making to a number of people yesterday and and into today is just that um, I think there is benefits to to thinking about this in a longer long term perspective. For me, when I look at the at um, at just the newspaper headlines, the the question that is it, right up at the very forefront is what what's going to happen in the South China Sea. What's uh, going to happen in the South China Sea? Like, is I, I think the question to ask is as fascinating and as as tragic as what's happening in Ukraine is. That the the next logical question is is whether or not China is going to also um, make a move in the next um, in the next weeks uh, or 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 months. I think you you can see in the the way I'm, I'm again teaching this in the context of a 20th century world history class, and I I explain to my students that the. That I make the argument that globalization as a process, um, it ended in the mid 19th century. And since the mid 19th century, the world has largely been been an interconnected uh, uh, system. The country, the empire that has exercised dominion or control over this rim of Eurasia that goes from Ukraine down across the Middle East uh, into to Southeast Asia and up toward to southern China has really shaped the way that the world politics has, has, has functioned. And the United States has played that role for, you know, since, since both of our lifetime, since the mid, mid, mid 20th century, at least. So one, one way to, to sort of see what we're, what we're living through, one way to, to think historically about what we're living through is that America's control over this Southern rim of Eurasia, it's not going to last forever. And part of what Putin is doing is challenging um, American influence in the Ukraine because he knows very well that the United States is on the decline right now. And the question then to ask is whether or not China is going to do the same thing on the other end of this this of this rim of, of, of Eurasia. And that would be really fascinating. That would be really problematic as well, because it would signal that both Russia and China are not just waiting for America to decline. They're actually now pushing the issue. And that's a scenario where you could potentially see um, this conflict mushroom in ways that uh, that would be really problematic and, and comparable to um, some of the events that we saw in the in the mid 
mid 20th century in the 1940s uh, in, in, in particular, because that is a real that would be an inflection point in a much, 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 much lo- uh, larger sense than anything that we've that we've lived lived through, at least since the, the late 80s and and the 19, 1990s. So it's a again, thinking historically um, gives you a gives you maybe the, a, a, a way to talk about current events um, apart from or separate from uh, social media and just the 24 hour coverage that's just, you know, gaping at the violence, the fact that Putin is actually um, is actually doing this. I think when you think historically, it's I, I, for me, the point is that there are a set of assumptions about American decline and he's acting on those assumptions, um, which is which is interesting, uh, but historically not unexpected. Um, well, tell us a little about American Decline. And I know you have a book, which I haven't read, uh, Vast External Realm, America and the Invention of the Free World. And that just interests me, the, the whole topic. If you could, I don't know, you can put your book, you know, your thesis in a nutshell, but... Um, I mean, was yeah. it Lippmann that invented the term Cold War? And did, now yeah. we, yeah, we have, you know, we have a different worldview. If you could just kind of tell us that thesis. Yeah, I think, you know, I, so I teach foreign policy at the at the uh, University at Albany. And one of the things that I've always been really interested in is the way that the United States has um, denied the existence of its own empire. Um, and that is a really fascinating, the, the, the notion that a, that a country like the United States that has expanded its influence over the course of the, of the 20th century, uh, the notion that the United States could, could do that while denying the, the existence of, denying itself as an imperial power is something that you can um, yell at. I think an earlier generation, you think about Vietnam, if you've lived through, through, through Vietnam, I mean, just the, the realization uh, that, that, that the United States is... is um, is extending its influence into places that it maybe shouldn't extend its influence is something that you can yell at for for me on the other side of the, of the early two thousands is what, what are the actual mechanics of how the United States does this? And so much of my research is about, or much of my writing is about how uh, liberal institutions liberal bureaucracies um, uh, that have really equated freedom with certain rights, the right of expression, uh, the right to life, uh, the right to property, how these institutions have have really naturalized the extension of of American power. Even even something like decolonization could be seen as an instrument of of American power. We're gonna we're gonna take apart these old European empires, grant self determination, but then make sure that those states have a seat at the United Nations, which happens to be located in in New York City, um, and they're going to follow a common set of of norms, a common set of, of, of beliefs. They're going to see the world. They're going to operate in the world in the way that, that we do. That as a as a project, the notion that freedom can be that, your right to belong to an international community that has institutional form in New York City, that is in our, our as Americans, in our, in our interest, that is fascinating to me. Uh, and I think that we are right now, to, to the point that I was making a second ago, we're watching that argument fall apart. I think compared to, you know, the 90s or even the early 2000s, I think far fewer people are willing to, on the left and the right, um, are, are willing to see the United States as something other than an empire. The right and the left take that insight in very different directions. So Trump is, you know, celebrating American empire as a instrument to take 
resources at a moment of climate change and 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 hoard those resources. And the the left, I think, sees liberalism as an obstacle to real freedom uh, from racial capitalism, uh, from from capitalism that is that is profoundly uh, racialized and and unequal. And so they're taking the left and the right are taking these insight in different ways. But the the net result is that there are fewer and fewer and fewer people who really um, believe in 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 American power uh, on the world stage. And that is I think that on top of the. Um, so there's a domestic component, which is that I think fewer Americans on the right and le- right and left really believe in in the American project uh, as a as a world making project. And then there's also the international dimensions of that, which is that. American authority is being contested in this very important uh, uh, territory that we were just talking about a moment. It's being contested by Russia uh, in Eastern Eastern Europe on the one end of the of the rimland of of Eurasia, and it's being contested by China on the other other side. So it's a fascinating. I think it's because we are right now living through kind of the political and the intellectual collapse of something that we thought was very natural and very normal. Uh, you, you have a, just a, a really really um, stimulating entry point to, to historicize uh, the rise of this, this system. So a lot of what I, I, I've, I've, my first book was about um, what happened when, when African states uh, joined the United Nations. Uh, and this challenged the United States uh, in really, really profound ways. Uh, the apartheid issue in particular was an issue that many African states grabbed hold of. From their perspective, South Africa as an explicitly racist, unapologetically racist state had no place in the UN. And the United States was at that time a pretty racist, was practicing Jim Crow itself. So these institutions have changed uh, because they've spread <laughs> because of their own uh, their own success. And so I find that story of how that has happened fascinating. But I also find it really interesting to see where these how people originally came to believe in this in the first place. The, the idea that that liberalism is very different than imperialism. Uh, that they're very that, that what the United States is trying to do in the world is very very different than what Great Britain was trying to do in the world, or or, or certainly what uh, to go back to where we started, where uh, or what Germany was trying to do in the in in the world. So what are the where did the seed of that come from? Uh, ironically, um, I, I the, the argument that I'm that I'm playing around with in this in in the, this latest book is that it came from the way that the United States managed its empire. Uh, after the, the the Spanish-American War at the end of the late 19th century, a whole number of um, mid-level colonial officials um, were very, very invested in proving and performing the difference between how the American empire in the Philippines and elsewhere, uh, how the American empire functioned from how other previous empires uh, f- functioned. And the idea was... was um, what sets the United States apart is to go back to the to, to that trifecta. Um, we uh, recognize rights, the right to your life, the right to um, property, and the right to self-expression. We recognize those rights and we protect those rights with sovereign states. But those sovereign states always belong. They always belong in an international community that has rules. And the most important rule is that no state can pick a fight with any other state and all states have to trade uh, uh, freely uh, with, with, with one another. And that idea, I think, has its origins in the um, – well, I, I mean, I would, I would argue it has its origins in Western expansion itself. 
you know, one of the things right out of the gates that sets the United States apart from other empires way, 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 way back at the beginning was that uh, New York uh, didn't didn't spread across Ohio uh, and, and end up in Oregon. We actually created new states in this frontier, and those states then joined the Union and then the and, and, and transformed the Union. I think in, in fascinating ways, that idea has been scaled off the continent into the hemisphere from the hemisphere into the Atlantic world more broadly. And in, in our time, we've seen it, we've seen it scaled, you know, since the fifties and sixties, we've seen it scaled into Africa and South Asia and other decolonizing, decolonizing places. And it's always, you know, it's, it, it's always tremendously, tremendously uh, contested because the more, <laughs> to state the obvious, you know, um, just because you give somebody a seat, in your in your international community doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to believe just like you believe they're going to have their own their own values their own their own interests and for me the story of of america and the world is is um how we open up these doors with certain set of expectations and then how the actual process of of conversing with people has to change change those expectations and i'm not sure if the formula is going to work much longer uh, that is just absolutely fascinating and the moment that we've found ourselves now is uh tearing at at that very precept because here is putin invading a state that is sovereign so where do you see us us being the united states going from here if you say you don't think this world view will hold much longer what what? I know you're a historian, yeah. meaning you you analyze what's happened in the past, but you can use that perhaps to see our trajectory. Yeah, I, I, you're asking a question that I that I struggle uh, to answer in my own life. Um, and for me, the project for the the project I see myself really invested in is just telling the story of how we got here as accurately and as authentically as possible. So that requires, you know, maybe looking at stories and, and events in the past and kind of looking at them in a slightly different way so that you make sense of the, of the future. But, you, but you're asking the question that is the question to, 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 um, to, to ponder, which is, you know, do we have another act? Because um, there is no example in history of an empire that just expands forever. <laughs> uh, on and on and on and on and on. I mean, we, we are to a degree that I, um, that wasn't even clear a few years ago. Uh, we are declining, you know, the American power is on the, is on the retreat. And so I think the, the question to ask is, is both how do we manage that retreat responsibly or how do we manage our decline responsibly so that we don't trigger, um, a, a world war, uh, because many examples of, you know, you look at world war one, you look at world war, uh, world war one, especially, but world war two, maybe to a, to a slightly lesser extent, um, in both of those settings, you could say the the war was caused by declining powers who were grasping on onto their onto onto authority that they could they just weren't going to hold on to. Great Britain in the Second World War and and uh, uh, the uh, the Ottomans and and uh, Austria Hungary in the in the in the First World War. So one one conversation to have is just like how do we how do we decline responsibly? That I think is a is a good debate to 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 have as as Americans so that we don't. Um, oh, in, in Ukraine right now, uh, so that we don't commit to a war we can't win, uh, and to helping people that we can't really we re we can't really help. And that, as an American who can remember 
the 1990s and just the sense that we we really could make the world better, project our influence to lots of places. We have to acknowledge that things happened between the 90s and now that delegitimized our position uh, and our capacity to actually to actually make the world a better better place. So so there's the geopolitical calculations. I think are about how do you decline responsibly and how do you how do you, you encourage a language that allows for that to happen. The thing that I find really equally fascinating is the intellectual side of that as well. Like um, uh, what's going to happen to the center, you know, the liberal center, uh, you know, what types of, of um, I would have said 10 years ago that, that criticizing capitalism, that criticizing neoliberal capitalism, that's a good thing. One, I, I don't know if my opinion has, has changed, but I certainly am cognizant that, the right is becoming far more uh, in this in this country and in other places far more far more authoritarian. So the notion that what comes next is going to be better than what came before is is a hard one to is the question to to, to ask, and that's being worked out right now in the Democratic Party. You know, are we going to is the Democratic Party going to be a party of the center, which holds on to um, you know a, a particular vision of of free market capitalism? Or does it need to embrace a role as being really critical of capitalism? Um, what are the implications of, of of that going going forward? So I I think um, I find myself uh, struggling uh, with with this because I see friends uh, on the on the left who are more radical now in their criticism of the United States and of, of American capitalism than they were you know a few years ago. And that radicalization, I think, mirrors some of the stuff that you see on the on the on the right as well. And I'm not sure if there's common ground. Yeah, I'm not sure how a society kind of coheres uh, and and keeps together. Um, you know, newspapers like the Enterprise are a really good means toward that end because well, you know, we they try to have common yeah. ground because there's so often people don't talk to each other, and we hope they do that on our pages. But our time is over, and I'm just so frustrated because you are just such a deep thinker do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave us with i i, I think just thank you i mean it, it like anything when you spend a lot of time up in the up in the uh up in the the sky um thinking through these things you know from the perspective of a computer screen and words and ideas and whatnot you really appreciate um projects that are in the community uh, like 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 the one that 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 you helm uh, at, the, at at the enterprise. I think the last two years in particular, just the pandemic has been um, so isolating that I think it has accentuated the importance of that you know timeless insight that most of our life is lived locally. <laughs> so the yeah. stuff that we're talking about is is interesting, well, important, but it's also not anywhere. One thing I wanted to mention, I'm just going to shoehorn it in here. You're also the director of the Institute for History and Public Engagement, and if you want to maybe just end telling us a little about that, because that seems to me like an important role that you're doing, not just used to be called the ivory tower, but you're, you know, doing things that engage with the reality. Just could you tell us a little about that before we leave? Because I meant my, my own mindset is, is again, changing because of, of current events. You'd think of public engagement as a scholar, mostly as, um, you know, writing in, uh, in, in magazines like the Atlantic or New Yorker. And that's, that's the line you take your insights off of the the journal articles and you put them into um, popular magazines, but I'm not sure if that's satisfactory. 
and 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 I think that's a that's uh, a viewpoint that the pandemic itself, which again caught us off and made us so so aware of just how important our local community is. Um, I do find myself much more interested in what the implications of public engagement are not not in the um, you know the 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 the, the uh, printed page that you happen to share your ideas on. Where do you publish as opposed but, to, so what might in community engagement look like that isn't that? I think participating in these types of conver conversations, you know, writing letters to, to, to an editor, for, for example, is a simple thing, but you wouldn't, um, you know, the, the, the culture in, in the ivory tower, uh, is, is, um, is very aloof to the, to the local politics that I think are so important in really shaping, shaping real people. Uh, and and uh, interacting with 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 real people outside of these um, you know these circuits of expertise and knowledge that often are very very uh, aloof uh, to to regular uh, lived life um, and I think that kind of breaking down that wall um, you know, having conversations like the one we're having right now is um, is really important I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of value in that and just you know in some respects it's a it's a uh, overly wordy version of just talk to your neighbor. <laughs> um. <laughs>